It's good to be together this morning. Are you awake? Those of you that were here all day yesterday, you're able to do more of this, are you? Yeah? All right. Good. Well, well, we'll see. We shall see. Well, uh, I'm really honored to be with you. Uh, we've so enjoyed just the little time we've had here. Um, I think it was, we were talking about, I think it was four years ago, uh, Andy Smith, Andy Masters came to our church. We hosted a conference and they both uh, served us and spoke at our church at a conference we were hosting. And so, you know, from that point on in our churches, we've discussed that week, uh, we've talked about the time that the Irish Andes came. Turn <laughs> out. You're Irish now. Do you claim him as Irish at this point? Is he? All right, good. I just want to be sure. It would have been awkward if they said no. <laughs> so I'm uh, really glad that went well. <laughs> but, uh, no, just so enjoyed them personally. They really served our church. And I know, I know for, for this uh, church, for um, the Belfast City Vineyard, your pastors sometimes disappear from time to time, and they go around and do things uh, at other churches. And so I would just want to say, as one who is a recipient of that gift, I want to say thank you uh, to you as a church, to uh, the movement as a whole. You make it possible not just for what these leaders do, many leaders do, to serve the movement, but you, know, you, you make it so that they can go elsewhere and spread what God is doing in other communities. And so thank you. Thank you for making that possible and being uh, kind of open to that. Uh, if you weren't open to it, and I'm thanking you for something you weren't open to, you should change that. That's all I want to say about that. And across, I, I mean, truly across the world, um, in the whole vineyard, I get to travel all over the world and have gotten to do things with the vineyard. Uh, people talk about what God is doing here. Uh, you know, when you're somewhere, you don't always know that. <laughs> you're in sort of the nitty-gritty of day-to-day -day life, aren't you? You're managing all the things you're managing with your local church and within your own part of the family and... Uh, you know, don't worry, I have no illusions, you guys are perfect. Because I, I pastor myself, uh, and I, I, have a, I have a church, I'm a part of the Vineyard family, uh, we're just as messed up as any family. But the whole movement and speaks so highly of you. And so from across the pond, and even representing the Vineyard, I just want to thank you for the way this, that you have served in your cities, in your communities, in a, in a very real sense, uh, the whole movement is learning from you and your faithfulness. And so thank you. Thank you for what you're doing and the way you choose to serve, the way you choose to sacrifice, the way you just keep choosing to show up. And so uh, the message I bring you is don't screw it up. <laughs> It will be very public and very embarrassing. <laughs> so, I, I really enjoyed uh, yesterday. I do believe that God has some great things in store for us uh, today. And um, I was reminded as I was flying here of the first time my wife and I came across the pond to be at the NLC. It was 2002. Um, I was 12, <laughs> and we had just, <laughs> we had just, <laughs> we just planted our church. Our church is about a year old, and we'd been invited to come over and share some things and do some different things. And to be entirely honest, I didn't actually know what the NLC was in Bournemouth. I wasn't, I didn't really know what it was. I just kind of knew some people, and they said, you should come. I thought, that'd be, that'd be cool. And so we'd come a few days early, and as we started to talk to some of our vineyard friends in the UK, they were like, this is the national conference. And I went, what? Why would they bring us to the national conference? They've made a terrible mistake. And I, I really wasn't aware of what was going on. And so, you know, I, I 
decided I should pray. And as I began, <laughs> this is the way these things really work, okay? You're getting a chance to see how the sausage is made. So I, it's <laughs> a good phrase. So I, um, you know, really started to pray, and it was, I had the clearest sense from God. I mean, bam, as soon as I started to pray, I, I felt the Lord just speak to me and say, this meeting you're about to go to will triple in the time that you get to visit it. Like, it's going to grow exponentially. The Lord, I'm just starting something. And I was like, okay. Of course, I didn't share that on the stage. A lot of pressure. But I knew it was the Lord. And surely, over the years, I've gotten to go back and visit the NLC and speak to the NLC. And, uh, and that, has, that has come to pass. It's been incredible to watch what God has done there. And I, I, honestly, I've not thought about that um, until this week. I was flying here and had almost the exact same word. Like you were coming in at the very beginning. Now, I didn't know that this was the first time you were doing this. And that, Jay, in your time being with these friends, you will get to watch what I do. It's a real gift to me. And then I felt really clearly the Lord speak to me about some of the things that I should uh, share with you and speak about. This will say something about my, um, my marriage. So try to judge me as little as you can. Danielle and I, as we were coming here, didn't talk about what we were going to speak on. Some of that's just because we both want to be able to pray and prepare and really seek God individually. It also is maybe because... We don't help each other with our sermons very much. I'm not sure. It's probably a little of both. And we arrived, and I said, well, what are you, you going to share? What are you going to speak on? And she started to spell out what she was sharing, which many of you heard. And as she said that, as I listened to each point, I went, I think that's the same sermons I'm writing. <laughs> Didn't say anything. Just listened because I'm a good husband. And at the end of that, um, she finished. I said, you know, it's really strange. I have almost the exact same talk. And she went, oh, so are you going to change it? Should I change? I mean, <laughs> should, should I change mine? And I went, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I, you know, and uh, so I thought, I'm going to weigh this. I'm going to consider it. But the more I prayed, the more I thought, I really think this is God um, still. So then as I heard Andy last night, I don't know if you heard it, but many of the themes of what Danielle shared were very similar, if not identical, to what Andy shared with us last night. So that's when it occurred to me, we've heard a very similar message two times. I'm up tomorrow for J-Day. Uh, should I change my talk? And I, again, I felt very clearly the Lord say, nope. I am speaking a very clear word about faithfulness and renewing calling for these people. Sometimes truth gets nailed into people. You know, it's like, it's like wham, God just does something and it goes right into you. And you're like, wow, that's, that was intense. That's going to stay with me. Other times, God chooses to screw it into you. <laughs> One, two... Three, four, screws don't come out quite as easily. And I believe God is trying to invest something into uh, this movement at this time and bringing it from a few different directions. And so uh, I really do want to share what would be similar to what you've heard, and, uh, but yet maybe through a little bit of a different vein, specifically in renewing and living fully into calling. Believing that you have been chosen and appointed by God to do the things you're doing and to step into the life that he's putting in front of you. Um, none of us, none of us signed up to live a life with God that would be boring. None of us said, you know, I think I would like to follow Jesus 
so I can just make it and then die. Nobody signed up for that. Nobody said the world is so evil and it's so broken and it's so despairing. If I can just sort of hold back the tidal wave of destruction just a little bit as it overwhelms my family and my life and my country and my city, maybe I'll just sustain it a little more than it would have. Right? Nobody does that. Nobody says, I, I just hope to just do a little bit. Nobody says, I'd like to live a life just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Local reference. <laughs> Credibility. And I know it was in perfect condition when it left. I, I know, I've heard it. I've heard it. I've heard it more than once, so. But nobody wanted that. And, and yet, can we just be honest? How many people that continue in their life with Jesus, specifically continuing in a life of ministry, find themselves coasting? They just find themselves saying, if I could just somehow manage this, if I could just get the next thing done, if I could just figure out how to make it through the next week or the next month, you know, if we could just sort of hold ground or lose less ground, wouldn't that be great? No one starts that way, but many finish that way. Many find themselves, as they continue in life with God, just trying to hang on, that it feels as though the enemy is more powerful than God. And we're just trying to hunker down and make it through and frankly, we find new and inventive ways to disqualify ourselves and rationalize our apathy, to make sense of it. I sat with a pastor who had been in ministry 30 years. Uh, this was about six months ago. I'm sitting with this pastor, and I said, Pastor, just tell me, how do you make it for 30 years in ministry um, in the U.S.? Uh, there's twice as many pastors leaving ministries going in. So I said, you know, how do you do it? He said, oh, it's sort of like really simple. I go, oh, okay, it's really simple. I'm in. He goes, just stop trying so hard. I go, what? He goes, just find like a scotch you like. Get a dog. Your church is going to dwindle down to nothing eventually. Every evening, pour your scotch, pet your dog, stare off, and wait to retire. He goes, I have 53 days. I went, all right. I think I'm done here. I'm... <laughs> Goodbye, I, I, this guy. And oh, by the way, some of you were like, that's great advice. No, no, listen. It's, no, time out. Listen, I, I'm, I'm putting that at the beginning of the talk to tell you that's messed up. That's really bad. We're, we're going to... We're going to spend the rest of the talk trying to undo that, okay? Uh, that is so depressing. It's so sad, and yet it's so common. And he did not start thinking that's how he would finish. How do you, like, live this thing out with some level of passion in the midst of things being so painful? It's a passage that I'd like to read for us, that is a story that I would like to have be my every day. Acts 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. 
Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate, called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Would anybody like this to be your every day? And you're just sort of wandering around in your life. You just look at people and go, look at me. I mean, I love, that's my favorite part. It's like, that's intense. Why did you do that? But look at me. Guys, like, silver or gold, I do not have. You know, it's, it's such a, it's like a movie scene, you know? Uh, I, I want to be in a movie every day. I would love that. But what's interesting is we have to consider the people who are participating in this. These are normal humans. And what Peter says next uh, is beautiful. It's his beautiful speech. It's a great little sermon. But there's one part I want to draw your attention to. Verse 11, while the man held on to Peter and John, it's amazing, all the people were astonished. They came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? <laughs> I mean, lots of reasons. Now, this is, the, this is the part I want to draw your attention to. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? For the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. And he goes on to describe how Jesus had been killed and he rose again. And it's in him that people find salvation. But in the middle of this encounter where Peter wants to give a great sermon, he wants to draw people to Jesus, he can't help but stop and say, why do you think that by our own power or our own godliness we made this man walk? Peter is keenly aware of his own fragility. Now, for those of you that maybe aren't students of the Bible, or maybe you know, you're still trying to figure out your way through this weird book we read called the Bible, you might not immediately be able to reference who Peter is. But Peter is like a mess of a human being. Do you remember how Peter was first called? That's right. At the Sea of Galilee, so if you're like, I don't. <laughs> he was like literally no one like had any. <laughs> Peter's first called at the sea. He's in his boat. He's been fishing all night. Didn't catch anything. He's up on the shore. He's cleaning out his nets. And here comes this rabbi and goes, can I borrow your boat? Too many people, can I push out on the water? Can I preach using the water as a soundboard to this huge crowd? Or I don't know, maybe Jesus didn't like people near him, touching him. Uh, I don't. I don't like crowds. Like, can everybody, I'm an only child. Everyone just stay in your space. Anyway, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why Jesus did that. But what he, he looks at Peter and he says, can we just go out on the water? I'll preach over the water. And Peter is kind of like, eh, all right, fine. Get in the boat. And they push out on the water. Remember, he was cleaning the nets so he can like finish his work night. And that's when Jesus looks at Peter and says, why don't you throw your nets in? Peter goes, we've been fishing all night, so no fish. Uh, day's done. Already clocked out. It's over. He goes, no, no, let's throw the nets in. He goes, uh, you're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. So <laughs> pretty good preacher. It was pretty good, but uh, I, don't, I don't think. No, you, you should throw them in. If you say so, throws it, and then boom, all the fish. Remember that? And right in that moment, 
How does, what's Peter's confession of faith? Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Peter's immediate recognition is how broken he is. This is before anything's happened. I'm a mess. You're making a mistake here. You don't want to work with me. And he goes, if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Peter goes, all right, let's do it. And there begins the circus known as Peter's life. Page after page of the New Testament, Peter is just jibber-jabbering, yammering, random stuff all the time. At any moment where it's kind of awkward, he'll be like, he just has like verbal diarrhea. Things just fly out of his face, like every page. Like everyone's standing there like, I don't know what's happening. He'll be like, I have a question, you know, and it's like, of course Peter has a question. Page after page after page. Sometimes it's great. You know, he'll fling something out of his mouth. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Everyone's like, that was good. And Jesus is like, you're right. That's true. Very next section, Jesus begins to describe how he'll be crucified. And Peter goes, no. We're not going to let that happen. Jesus goes, hmm, get behind me, Satan. In one page, (laughs) one page, Jesus says, I'm going to build the church on you. One page, he says, you are Satan. (laughs) This is Peter. This is Peter. And of course, when the pressure's on, Jesus says, everybody's going to deny me. This whole thing's about to fall apart. Who stands up and says something stupid? Peter. Peter stands up and goes, not me. I don't know about these guys, but I'm in. Right? You know, that, you know all this. But actually, not too far before that. There's a reason why Peter believes this about himself. Not too far before that, when Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Great sermon. Right? Like, uh, and people are like, you want us to come up there and bite you? I'm not going to do that. He's like, well, then you can have nothing to do with me. People are like, this is weird. This has gone way too far. We are out of here. They start walking away. And Jesus looks at the 12 and goes, do you guys want to leave too? And I imagine, if not all of them, most of them are going, maybe. We're not going to take a bite of you, Jesus. This has gone way too far. I mean, seriously, this is what's happening, guys. I mean, when you're in the text, you start to go, this is really weird. And Peter speaks up and gives one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful confessions of faith in all of the scriptures. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that would be the moment, that's John 6, by the way, that would be the moment where Jesus is supposed to say, Peter, you're amazing. Way to go, man. Nope. Very next thing he says is, one of you is the devil. Let's go. It's right there in the text. And they kind of look at each other and go, all right, they just kind of wander off. So that makes sense why then later, when Jesus says, this is all going to go wrong. They're about to take me. There's going to be a trial. It's going to be bad. Peter pops to his feet. Listen, these guys will all desert you, but not me. Jesus very graciously looks at him and says, Oh, Peter, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat, but I'm praying for you. And you're going you're gonna to deny me. I, I imagine it being just sad, you know. Some people see that as some sort of like really predictive, prophetic moment. Maybe it is. My, my way of understanding that would be that he looks at Peter and just goes, I just know what you're made of, man. You're not formed in a way that you're going to be able to manage this next moment. 
it's going to go bad for you. He says, but I'm praying for you that when you turn back, that you will come back and you'll serve your brothers. Somehow, after it all goes wrong and you realize what's happened, I'm praying that God grabs a hold of you again. Now that all leads then, because of course, if you don't know the story, Peter denies Jesus three separate times. Um, I would argue that all three of those times he denies Jesus were because he couldn't see them coming straight at him. They kind of came from the side. You know, all three, you know, he was probably prepared for the kind of critical moment, but he wasn't prepared for someone just sort of bumping into him outside the trial. He wasn't prepared for a young girl going, I think I know who you are, and he's thrown off. And so almost reflexively, he denies Jesus out of self-protection. Isn't that how it goes? It isn't like that we deny Jesus at our best moments when we're prepared. It's we skirt around the edges of destruction when we're not prepared. Um, when we haven't, we don't see the attack coming from someone at work, around the family dinner table, with a friend, on a business trip, with our buddies at the pub. We don't know when it's coming. And then we're so embarrassed by the fact that we didn't respond the way we wished we would, but the fact is if we've not been formed the right way, we won't react the right way. We react out of our formation, not our intentions. We react out of the ways we've been trained reflexively. And that's why it's so much more important what you do alone than what you do with others. So this is Peter. And if you know the story, after this denial, Peter is effectively clinically depressed. You know, he looks at the guys and is just like, I think I'm done. Jesus warned me. I did it anyway. I think I'm done. Uh, it's interesting, if you look at the resurrection accounts, how many of the resurrection accounts, when Jesus appears to the disciples... If Peter isn't present, he will tell the disciples specifically to go get Peter. Which gives you the impression that amongst the disciples, Peter has eliminated himself. He's so ashamed. He's so embarrassed. I mean, his failure was public. It was in front of everyone. And they were all afraid and they all ran away, but only one stood up and said, I'll never deserve you. And so we come to this beautiful passage. This is the only other passage I want you to consider. I can't read the whole thing, but I want to draw out a few thoughts in relationship to how Peter is formed to become the kind of person that looks at a man and says, stand up and walk. Something had happened to Peter where he knew it wasn't just about him. He'd been humbled sufficiently to be rightly used by God. John 21. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it would take too long, but if you don't know the story, if you don't, haven't read this text or you haven't studied it, I would highly recommend you study this text. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter of Scripture. And in John 21, Peter and the boys are still pretty depressed. Peter specifically is really depressed, and he looks at the guys and says, I'm just going to go fishing. In that sense, Peter just returns to what he knew before. And that's what we all do. When we're stressed and we don't know what to do, we just go back to what is comfortable and familiar, don't we? What's easy? You know, we go and watch the Netflix rerun. You know, we go and watch The Office again because we want something familiar. We just want something simple. We want something easy. I don't know what yours is. You know, you watch the Bourne series because you just know what's going to happen. You don't have to think. I'm confessing my sin to you. I don't know yours. Fill in yours. That's what Peter does. I know fishing. 
something I'm familiar with. I don't know how to manage all this. Jesus has died. He's back again. Somehow we're all supposed to do something. I can't manage this. I'm going to go fishing. So he goes fishing. And it turns out uh, they don't catch any fish. And as they're pushing back toward the shore, um, there's Jesus walking on the shore. The resurrected Jesus. They don't recognize him, which is a really interesting phenomenon through the resurrection um, that we, you can talk about some other day. But he calls out. Jesus calls out from the shore. You got any fish? No. They shout back. You know, just the way fishermen might talk on the shore to each other. So they're still not figuring out who he is. He says, you know, you should, uh, you should probably throw your net on the other side. And they're like, all right, you know, whatever. Throw it, throw it as they're dragging the boat in, and bam, they catch all these fish. Then John, who calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, kind of arrogant, <laughs> through, through his own gospel, he's like, I'm the one he loves. So he looks at Peter. It's not that arrogant, actually. I think it's how we should all refer to ourselves. He looks at Peter and says, that's the Lord. John's eyes open first. That's him. Peter suddenly, you know, realizes it too. And I don't understand this part, honestly, but it says that he wraps a jacket around himself. He jumps in the water and swims to the shore. And when he lands there, Jesus somehow uh, has sort of been making a meal and they... Uh, have some fish and some bread. And it's kind of this quiet moment of reconnection. They share a meal together. And then Jesus kind of takes Peter aside and has a conversation. So that starts in verse 15. Listen to what happens. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. A third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. It's a a beautiful section here. Um, The next part is mostly just for my comedy. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. That's John. He's the one who was lean, blah, blah, blah. Verse 21, then Peter saw him and he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Even as Peter has this beautiful moment with Jesus, he's like, what about him? All through John's gospel, Peter and John have this little kind of running, like, competitive thing. You can hear it mostly through John's voice. I would love to hear Peter describe it. I look forward to being with Peter someday and asking him about this. Like, for example, the resurrection, John describes how Peter and John run to the tomb, but John got there first. (laughs) It's like, it's almost like he's like, Peter's kind of a fat guy. I'm tough and strong. And anyway... So there's always this little running dialogue. But again, what we see the humanity of these people, don't we? We see the humanity of these people. And we see something in this moment with Jesus and Peter that Jesus sort of reinstates Peter. I mean, that's usually how it's titled in your Bible. But he does so in a very peculiar and particular way, which I would like to suggest to you is the way that Jesus continues to reinstate us. That we need Jesus to come up alongside of us 
multiple times and say, let's do this again. I mean, you might be in a place where you're ready to quit and you need Jesus to come up alongside of you and say, let's do this again. Or if you're not in a place where you're ready to quit, you will be someday. Because the pain and the pressure of all of this is difficult. Or it might not be that you're ready to quit. It might be more that God is asking something much larger of you than you've ever given before. And the thought of taking that risk seems insurmountable. Plan a church, whatever. And you need Jesus to come alongside and say, let's do this again. So how does Jesus reinstate Peter? How does he call him to the next thing? I'm just going to say three things really quickly and we'll be done. First thing he does is he reminds Peter of his salvation. The moment is perfectly scripted. It's the exact moment. It's the exact moment. It's the same way that Jesus called Peter in the first place. Isn't that remarkable? Same thing with the fish, same thing with the nets, the same deal, right? Listen, as God wants to get a hold of you, one of the key ways that God gets a hold of us again is he reminds us of how we first started with him. He takes you backward to where you remember that it really always was about grace. In distinction to this other pastor that I just told you about, there was another pastor I really respect who also had been in ministry 30 plus years. And I said to him, how would you recommend that I stay in ministry? Because it's discouraging. He goes, oh yeah, it's totally discouraging. He said, I, I, have, a, I have a really simple way for you to do that. He goes, okay. He says, every single morning, every single morning, I wake up and I remember that I've been saved by God, by grace alone. And he pointed me to a prayer, it's a Hebrew prayer called Dayenu, which Dayenu literally means it would have been enough. Um, for many Jews around a Shabbat meal to this day, they will sing a song called the Dayenu. And the Dayenu, they simply just repeat all the things that God has done. And after each thing they say, they say, and it would have been enough. It would have been enough if you just saved me. It would have been enough if you just gave me some friends to walk with. It would have been enough that you just put breath in my body. It would have been enough that, God, you've come near to me from time to time. It would have been enough, but you continue to lavishly pour blessing on me. Listen, all real ministry and life with God flows from gratitude. And gratitude disappears so quickly, so quickly in a world that's grasping and entitled and desperate and in pain. And if you don't ground yourself in gratitude, where you're grateful for all that God's given you, all the other kinds of things you try to do for God and with God, are they always have that like little tinge of striving and agitation about them, don't they? Some of you right now are listening like, yeah, that explains a lot. I don't know that I ground myself in gratitude. I, I just feel like I'm always pressing. I'm always trying. Listen, Jesus resets Peter by saying, this is where we started. This is where we will always be that I give you things by grace. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, as you have received Christ, therefore walk with him. You live your life with God the same way you started your life with God, by grace, period. No one graduates from that. No one receives Christ by walking up front in a room and going, I am awesome. You can have me. Like, if they do, they don't understand how it works. That's not how it works. Is that how it works? That's not how it works. But isn't it weird that sometimes people, like, live their life that way? They get to some kind of point where they think that they can make a demand of God. 
I mean, when I, when I talk to people and they go, well, I'm just really mad at God because this didn't work the way I wanted it to. I'm like, you're mad at God because it didn't? He saved you. He gave you his son who suffered and died for you. He bled out for you. He gave everything for you. When you wanted nothing to do with him, he wanted everything to do with you. And now, like some petulant child, you're going to say, well, I didn't get the candy I wanted. Oh, no. It's God's mercy doesn't give you what you want. That you might be humbled again. That you might be brought to your knees. That you would be stunned at what a great mercy we have. What, what an incredible God. How kind He is. How loving He is. His mercy is unfathomable. That everything in our hearts pulls from Him. And yet He still comes towards us. Oh. Oh, that God might keep us on a short leash. That we might constantly be reminded of his mercy and grace. Don't you hear that shouting through Peter's words? When he sees that man healed, he goes, why do you look at us by our own godliness? We made this man walk. Do you not know who I am? I am Peter, the man of verbal diarrhea. I am Peter, the man who ran from Jesus. And he had mercy on me. And he called me back in. I didn't do this. Jesus Christ did this. I am honored that I even get to breathe at this point. Let alone walk with Jesus. Let alone pray for the sick. What a gift. What a mercy. I'm, I'm forever grateful. His ministry flows from there because he was reduced to that place of humility. That's how Jesus reinstates him. And how does Jesus remind him of the call? What does he keep asking him? Do you love me? All ministry flows out of gratitude and affection for Jesus. It's not about your gifts. Your gifts were given to you. They're not yours. He's given to you. It's just affection for Jesus that makes anything worth doing. I Love you, Peter says. He goes, okay, well then go feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Calling on your life is 100% dependent on your affection for Jesus. Not just that you believe the right things, but that you're, you're inspired by him. You are in love with him. Uh, John 15, Jesus says, remain in me, I'll remain in you. You will bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You can do a few things pretty well apart from me. No, it doesn't say that. It says you can do nothing apart from me. Any ministry, any way that you try to live life with God that's not born out of a heart affection for Jesus, it might bear fruit, but it's not fruit that'll last. It won't last. Jesus says, it's, I want you to bear fruit that lasts. He says, remain in my love and I will remain in you. Remain in my love. What do you love about Jesus? How is Jesus compelling to you? Do you see how then all of a sudden spiritual disciplines make sense? Because you're cultivating a love for Jesus. You're not just like doing because you're supposed to. You're doing because you want to be engrafted into life with God, so that the life of God flows through you and from you. If you aren't in that spot, everything else gets hollow. It's all playing games. What do you love about Jesus? I ask people that all the time. It's my favorite question to ask people. What do you love about Jesus? It's present active. If I ask that question and somebody says, oh, you know, I was saved in 1987. It was incredible. I'm like, uh-oh, that's not good. It would be like if I asked you, what do you love about your wife? What do you love about your husband? And you said, we had a great wedding. <laughs> uh-oh, something's wrong, right? Because, or if they gave me some kind of clinical assessment of their spouse, he provides well and does the dishes. 
That's not good. Some people's faith works that way. I believe in Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, one Lord, our Messiah. That's a, that's a, that's a true answer. But it's not an affectionate answer. It doesn't describe a place of passion. Jesus says, remain in my love. When Jesus reinstates Peter, he puts him in the ministry, he says, do you love me? And then that's where the call, then do these things. That might just be enough for you right now. Some of you right now go, I'm not living out of that place of affection. Well, that means everything's going to be hollow. You don't need a new technique You don't need a new trick. You don't need like cooler lights or some fog. It won't work. You don't even need to be a better preacher. You don't need a better musician. You don't need a cooler building. You need affection for Jesus. You need to be connected to him in a way that you can't help but speak his name. You can't help but get emotional at the mention of what he's done and who he is. And the last thing, I'll say it very briefly, is Jesus clears up the past in order for him to move forward. Peter denied him three times, so Jesus reinstates him, guess how many times? Three times. He makes him answer it three times as a way of reversing the old things. Now, if Peter did that three times, I know for me, At any moment that God wants to sort of put a new thing into me, he always takes me backward. Listen, this is important. This is what I think he wants to do right now. (laughs) He always takes me backward to clean up a place that isn't quite healed up the right way. That isn't quite whole. There's something of shame or fear or pain. In my past, he says, if I want to give you something here, Jay, we're going, to have to, we're going to have to deal with this. This is at every place of ministry. Uh, by the way, after this, it's not like Peter's suddenly perfect. I mean, when you read Galatians 2, Paul shows up and goes, Peter, you don't even know the cross. You're bad at this. He's like, I'm sorry. Well, you know, I, it's not as though like this is like a one-time moment, right? I mean, I'm serious. Read Galatians 2. It's fascinating. Paul literally walks up to him and just goes, I don't even think you understand how any of this works. Peter's like, you're probably right. I, I don't know, man. Help me. Because by that point, he just, he just repents faster. Right? I think that's part of maturity. Maturity isn't we get everything right. We just repent quicker. And so, so, so if God wants to bring you forward, which I think is what he's doing in this room, that means some of it is you have to go backward. Uh, it'd be... I don't know, three years ago, we were looking to make a big move in the way we were thinking about church and doing things differently. And uh, I was just having all this trouble with leaders, and specifically leaders that I was interacting with who were trying to coach me through some transitions. And it was just lots of tension and lots of pain and lots of frustration. I felt like my leaders weren't behaving the right way. They, you know, they were kind of irritating, and, and then people I was asking for coaching from were kind of irritating, and I was just irritated. You know, I just walked around kind of agitated. I'm like, why do leaders just suck? Just be better. Why can't you guys just be better at this? And, you know, I'm just, and it's, of course, everybody else's problem, not mine. And I'm praying, and I, the Lord speaks to me so clearly. I have this picture. I remember being in fifth grade, I was 12 years old, and it was a parent-teacher conference um, where your parents come in and they see the school. And I was so excited to bring my dad to parent-teacher conference. And I had all this, you know, there's artwork, you know, little presentations you do. And I can remember it vividly. And, you know, this will tell you how old I am, but it was the desk that you, like, stuck your stuff in. You know, the little cubby hole in the bottom. You know, you stick your papers and your stuff in. And so I have my desk, and we're all sitting at our desk. My dad's with me. All the parents are there. We're all going to do our little thing. You know, there's a song, and you go walk around, you know, and so I'm kind of nervous. You know, my dad's here. This is great. And in the middle of, like, the teacher doing a presentation, my dad looks at my desk, and he goes, this is a mess. And it was a mess. My filing system was to just jam it in there. So anywhere there was a little space, it was like, 
And he goes, this is a mess. I go, yeah, I know, you know. And he goes, you can't be like this, Jay. This is so disorganized. I go, yeah, I know. And, then we'll, we'll. and I'm kind of whispering, you know, because the thing's happening. And he stands up and he dumps my desk out in front of the whole class. And he starts sorting things. And he goes, get down here on the floor with me. And everybody kind of looks up, you know, because like coins and pens and all this stuff just roll out everywhere. And I felt so embarrassed. I felt so embarrassed. And this parent behind us actually looks at my dad and says, I don't think this is the time for that. And my dad turns around and goes, why don't you shut up and mind your own business? And so then I'm there like organizing stuff with my dad. And I was so embarrassed. And, and I, the Lord brings me to this place, and I have this remembrance of saying in my mind, I can't trust anybody. Nobody is there to help you. It's, it is up to you. Don't let anybody, don't allow this moment to ever happen again. And the Lord just brings me right there, and he goes... We have to deal with this. Because you're going to have to learn to trust people. You're going to have to learn to forgive people. You're going to have to let people into the mess of your life. And, and I will never embarrass you. But there's some stuff we're going to have to clean up here, Jay. There's some ways your heart is disordered. We're going to have to work on this. And it was so powerful. I just sat there weeping like, oh, no. And so then I thought, and so I'm good. And of course, I was not good. Then, then it's like, well, I probably need to get some counseling. I need to go sit with some people and parse this out. How has this root grown up in my life? And it took, it, it's probably it's still at work. But I, it was as though the Lord said, we have to deal with this if we're going to continue to do this. I wonder what that is for you. I wonder what things the Lord keeps bringing you back to. What thing out there? You know? Well, you know how pastors are. No, I don't know how pastors are. Well, you know how they are. They're controlling. Are they? Maybe you have pain. No, it's the pastors. <laughs> you know how men can be. I don't know how men can be. You know. I wonder what your thing is. What is it that you take a wide berth around? What is it that can push your buttons? What is it that shuts you down? And I would like to suggest that God wants to take you there in order to take you forward. That's exactly what he does to Peter. God wants to ground you in gratitude. He wants to show you what it is to have an affection-filled life with him. And he wants to set you free. He wants to form you and reform you so that he can put his weight on you for what's next for you and what's next for this entire, entire island. Amen?